Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. One of the things that Jesus remarked in the Gospels was, I've come to do the will of the one who sent me. And one of the great things about that last song we just sang is that it recognizes again um, that we are here for God's glory and we're here to serve God. He is king, he is Lord, he is ruler over all. And so we are uh, his people and we gather to, to worship him. And I just want to say thank you to Brian and our team uh, for helping lead us this morning in worship. Um, I, I, I know Brian just prayed a moment ago, but could we just pray together right now? Our Father and our King, we, uh, we're thankful for your presence. We're thankful, God, that you are here with us, that you have given us your word to lead and to guide us into truth. And God, as we jump into a, a different passage uh, for, for us today, Leviticus 23, God, I pray that you would teach us your ways. I pray that we might see the glory of the resurrected Messiah. God, I pray for things going on in each one of our lives here. There, there, there are people here, Lord, who've been through really difficult weeks. We pray for Kendall Dozman and his family as they mourn the loss of his dad. We pray, God, for uh, the continuing effects of all the stuff around us. Um, God, Give us great wisdom and patience to know how to love people well. People in our homes and people in our city, people at work. God, you've placed us amidst a world that is broken and hurting. A world, God, that we believe, as you have taught, needs the truth of your word and needs the gospel. Lord, give us a great passion to share and to go. God, we, uh, we are your servants. We stand, we sit here today, ready to be taught. Teach us through the work of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, it is good to have you here as we jump into a, a fun day ahead. Um, this morning's going to be a little bit different. We're hitting pause on our series from the latter uh, part of the book of Romans, and we're going to be opening our Bibles to Leviticus 23. So would you please open your scripture with me uh, to Leviticus 23. I'm sure you've read this recently, right? Um, no, it's, it's a great passage, and it's a passage that walks through the feasts of Israel. And what I want to do this morning, uh, be, because right now we're in the tail end of the last feast of the calendar year. And uh, it's, it's the, or at least the last major feast. It's the Feast of Sukkot. And my, my initial um, desire was to just do a couple of the feasts, maybe just Sukkot, because next week we're going to study Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is, is, a, is a portion that, that people would read during Sukkot. But then I was like, we need to set a whole context for just the feasts. And then I was like, well, how do we do that? And so we go to Leviticus 23. And Leviticus 23 outlines these feasts that God has commanded Israel to keep. And one of the things that's key to all of these feasts is that the Messiah Jesus is at the center of them all. 
All right, now Leviticus 23 happens before he comes to the earth, but the Messiah Jesus is at the center of each one of these feasts. And we're going to study these feasts and talk a little bit about them. Please know there's a whole lot more that could be said about each one of these but they're instructive for our lives today. So in this latter part of the feast season here, I invite you to turn with me as we jump in to Leviticus 23. Um, next week, as Pastor Cameron mentioned, uh, Dr. Russ Meek, one of my profs from Moody um, Theological Seminary, is going to be here. And he is a super cool dude and really smart when it comes to a lot of Bible stuff. Uh, he, he worked with me on Hebrew, and he was patient and kind. And uh, we are jumping into Ecclesiastes because he's just a scholar with Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a very important book, I believe, for our time in the world that we live in today. So um, as we jump into this, two disclaimers. Um, There's several great resources out there to help you study um, the biblical feasts, okay? Um, One of those that I have found is a congregation led by Rabbi Larry Feldman, who's a Messianic rabbi. He's out of Irvine, California, and the congregation is called um, Shuva Yisrael. Some fantastic stuff on their website. There's also a book called Messiah and the Feasts of Israel by Sam Nadler. There's other resources I could point you to, uh, but just know that they've been incredibly helpful to me in preparing for today. So, couple of things before we jump into Leviticus 23. Why would we bother to study the feasts? Well, th- there's several reasons here that could be given. So this is your like, why are we doing this? W- what's going on? Um, number one, they're in the Bible, okay? They're in the Bible, and they occur several times throughout the Bible, not just in Leviticus, not just in, in portions of the Hebrew Scriptures, but actually within both Hebrew Scriptures and within the New Testament. They're given to Israel to keep in light of the covenant that they have with God in Exodus 19. Leviticus 23 outlines them all for us, but, but they have a lot of bearing on the biblical text, both testaments. And and one of the things that they do for Israel is they provide a pattern of life for Israel to remember what God has done and to look forward to what God will do in order to redeem his people, which he's already done, but also to bring them to himself, which has a culmination in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, One of the things that we find with feasts is they actually provide a context for a lot of passages. For example, in John chapter 7, Jesus is, is at the last and the greatest day of the feast, and he has some words to say. And if you take his words just as himself, you go, wow, that's incredible. But then if you know the context of the feast and what is going on in the day and time, John 7 and 8 and following, you're like, wow, that is absolutely incredible that he would say, you know, I am the light of the world during a lighting ceremony. You know, or that he would say that, that I am, I, I'm, if, if, you, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of me come flowing rivers of living water during the driest time of the year. Okay, they're set within this agricultural context that as Israel's walking through, they just make sense. Uh, and so they help, us provi- they help provide us some additional information for what's going on in biblical passage. Um, also, and, and I love how Rabbi Larry Feldman puts this, they're a part of God's prophetic plan for what he does for his people. In other words, when you look at the feasts, you look at what God has done and you look at what God will do. Uh, Rabbi Feldman actually separates them into um, 
um, feasts that have already had um, tied to the first appearance of the Messiah and feasts, the, the fall feasts, that have their future uh, fulfillment within the second appearance of Messiah. And so uh, that's some background as to why we would study these and how they could help us understand the scripture more effectively. Um, The first feast we find, look with me please, um, Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, these are my appointed times, the times of the Lord that you will proclaim as sacred assemblies. Work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day there must be a Sabbath of complete rest, a sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord wherever you live. The first um, feast is Shabbat that is mentioned here with in the biblical passage. Uh, And I have this up here. I forgot to put this up just a minute ago to to help you understand the cycle, the calendar cycle of Israel is different than it is for us today. Um, You will see it kind of uh, compare, contrast. The, the, The first month of the Jewish year is called Nisan. So you'll see that at the top of your screen, uh, Nisan, first month, and then you'll go around clockwise there. And you have several feasts that occur. They're called the spring feasts. Boom, 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 boom. There's four kind of right within a three-month span. You have a dry season, and then you come to Rosh Hashanah down in the seventh month. It's the first of the seventh month, and you go into the fall festivals. Before you get to these, though, the text says the first um, feast that I have for my people here is Shabbat. Shabbat. Shabbat occurs every week. Uh, it is often uh, begins with the lighting of candles and the breaking of bread. Um, I grew up in a faith tradition that celebrated and observed Shabbat on Friday night going into Saturday night. And so on Friday afternoon, the house was abuzz. The, the, um, the, everything was getting cleaned and especially when we were little kids, we would sit down with our family. We would have a meal on Friday night. We would do various scripture readings. We would say some prayers. And it would be a 24-hour period of rest. Shabbat essentially means to cease or to rest. And and we rest because um, God rested. Um, In Genesis, it says that God rested on the seventh day because he had completed his work of creation. Now, this command to rest was later given to Israel and to those within their gates to rest from work. Sabbath gives a context for the biblical command to work and also the reminder for us that work is not the sum of life. In other words, we are to also rest in God's provision, um, which is perfect. Um, while the command uh, is for Israel in Exodus 19 or in Exodus 20, um, the principle is rooted in Genesis. But one of the things that we find and the scriptures that all true rest is found in Messiah. Now, there's, there is something that is good for us to take a 24-hour period and say, my life is not going to be driven by my life and my schedule and what I have to do. Rather, I'm just going to go, ah, oh, and dwell with my creator and gather with my kids and not be driven by the notifications on my phone or not be driven by what I have to get done But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. Jesus longs for us when we want to experience rest, which we should all want to experience rest, right? He wants us to come to him. But one of the things that God has modeled for us is seventh day 
rest. There is something helpful to our souls about taking a 24-hour period of time, a period of time in which to allow your identity to be formed again by what Christ has done for us. We, almost, we, we must always remember um, on these times, and, and I know many people take this time during a Sunday, 24-hour period of time. Some people have a work schedule that is um, challenging to do that with, with, with Saturday. My encouragement to us is this. Find that period of time in which you can be renewed as a family and as a person and say, Lord, what does it mean for me to quiet my soul from all the chaos of life around me? Maybe it's just shutting off Facebook for a day so you don't get riled up about something, right? Maybe it's hitting pause on all the things that really can wait. And by waiting, you're reminded that God is the source of everything you need. There's something just really important about this principle and practice of Shabbat. That deserves its own sermon series at a future time anyway. Um, but, but all rest is rooted in the Messiah Jesus. Um, but the text goes on. So the first one is Shabbat. And then we go to Leviticus 23, verse 4. These are the Lord's appointed times. The sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Passover to the Lord comes in the first month at the twilight of the 14th day of the, of the month. The feast of unleavened bread to the Lord is on the 15th day of the same month. For seven days, you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you're to hold a sacred assembly. You're not to do any work. You are to present a fire offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day, there will be a sacred assembly. You must not do any work. So the first... Um, the first feast in the biblical year, you'll just look at, look at it this way, it, within the Jewish calendar, in, in the 14th day of Nisan is Passover, okay? This is important. It goes Passover, it goes unleavened bread, and it goes first fruits. And these three go boom, 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 okay? So you got 14 Nisan, unleavened bread is 15 Nisan, and then you have first fruits, which is three days after Passover, okay? It's, it's marked in time that way. Um, so Passover, this one is probably one of the feasts that we know the most about uh, because one of the things that reminds us of it is every time we take communion, like we're going to today. Communion is a retelling in some ways of how the Messiah Jesus was our Passover lamb. Um, Nisan is the first month of the Jewish New Year. It's, it's the religious New Year. Sometimes you'll hear um, that Rosh Hashanah is the New Year, which comes in the seventh month, and it is. It's the civil New Year. Um, Jewish people like their New Years, okay? So we have redemptive New Year, then we have civil New Year. But one of the important things to remember is that New Year is marked by redemption, all right? It starts with redemption, this biblical pattern that God has set always begins with, I have redeemed you. And, it, and it's the story, you know, Passover is the story, likely. It's, it's the story of how God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, I'm going to take you out with a strong hand. And I'm going to free you from the bondage that you are in. And so he commands them, I want you to take a lamb into your house. I want you to roast it. I want you to put the blood on the doorpost of your gates. This is prescribed for Israel to keep in a particular way. But we see how this prefigures what the Messiah Jesus has done for us. For example, hear this verse from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The story of Passover, when Jesus died, he, he, he said, 
Here I am. I, I am this, I'm the sin offering. I'm the one here to pay for the sins of the world. Messiah died for our sin. The biblical calendar marks first redemption because all things flow from what the Messiah has done for us. It's the slavery to sin Egypt paradigm that goes on. So you have Passover. You know about that? There's a whole bunch of stuff. There's a whole bunch of symbols there that if you're to have a Passover Seder, you go through like the saltwater tears of when people were in Egypt and all this kind of stuff. It, it, it goes on for, for an awesome two hours or more. And it's very instructive to families as well about here's the story of God's redemption. But the next one is um, first fruits. Actually, it goes Passover, and then it goes Feast of Unleavened Bread, then it goes first fruits. Um, Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread go together, and the reason they go together uh, is, is because pa- Passover is the known one, uh, but 15 Nisan, it's part of the next seven days. In Leviticus 23, 6 through 8, the command to keep um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, is to remove all the yeast that is within your house. It, it's, it's, to, it's to eat only unleavened bread, which is known as the bread of affliction, um, because, as Deuteronomy says, you shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with, seven days you shall eat with, uh, with it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day that, that when you came out of the land of Egypt. Um, so as, as the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's to remember that God has brought them out of slavery, out of sin. And it's the separation from sin. Leaven in the scripture, yeast in the scripture, but it's not just yeast. It can be, leaven can be a lot of different things. But, but it's that which um, is used as a metaphor for sin. And in Exodus 12, 15 through 20, there's this process that's described for God's people about how they're to to get rid of the leaven in their houses and how they're to keep this feast properly. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, though, and it ties well with Passover. It says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sanctified. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so as a family gets ready to celebrate Passover, they go and they get all the things that contain leaven and they get them out of their house. Redemption, Passover happens. They celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's this marker, it's this picture, it's this reminder that when we come to faith in the Messiah, God does not want to leave us in the same place we were when we came to faith. He wants us to take all of this waywardness and self-centeredness and pride and say, God, would you cleanse this out of my life? We, we, we know we're redeemed, want a, a phrase to describe that, say removal of sin. Removal of sin. Okay, it's this, this process of getting out all this sin in our life that, that Christ helps us with, that Christ takes for us, but it's the giving away and, and clearing our house, as it were. Then we have first fruits. One word for first, first fruits, if you want to summarize first fruits in one word, it's this. It's resurrection. Can you say resurrection? 
Okay, so three days following Passover, um, there is the Feast of First Fruits. Now, First Fruits is symbolic of a harvest that is to come seven weeks later at Shavuot. Uh, you'll find First Fruits in um, Leviticus 23, verses 9 and following. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, when you enter the land I'm giving you and you reap its harvest, you are to bring the first sheaf, first fruit there, of your harvest to the priest. He will wave the sheaf before for the Lord so that you may be accepted. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you're to offer a year-old male lamb without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering is to be four quarts of fine flour mixed with oil as a fire offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering will be one quart of wine. You must not eat bread, roasted grain, or any new grain until this very day and until you have brought the offering to your God. This is a permanent statue throughout your generations wherever you live. Okay, so first fruits comes three days following Passover, symbolic of the harvest to come seven weeks later at Shavuot. So they would take the first of their offerings and they would bring them to the Lord because they recognized that he was the giver of everything they needed. All right? This is a, this is a picture that Jesus even picks up uh, on, on learning what it means to trust the Father who has given us every single thing we need. And there's three offerings. There's a lamb offering, which is a dedication to God. There's a grain offering, and there's a wine offering. Now, grain and wine are considered to be two of the staples of life. And so one of the ideas behind first fruits is, God, you have been so good to us. God, you have been faithful. You have provided what we needed. You might sum it up in uh, this way, as the old hymn writer says, all that I have needed your hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. I don't know if it was written with the idea of first fruits in mind, but you could totally make that case, okay? God has provided everything we need. Now, scholarship generally agrees that the Messiah Jesus died on a Friday and was in the grave Friday night, Saturday, and was raised Sunday morning, okay? Um, so three days, and in Jewish reckoning of time, uh, with regard to this, and if you want some great resources, I can give them to you. Um, the, the way Jews would reckon time is any part of a day is considered a day. In, in other words, I have lived this day. Even though I've not lived the full day, I have lived this day. And so they consider any part of a day um, as, as, as representative of the day. So, so Jesus is raised on Sunday morning, resurrection morning. But the reason that Jesus is raised on Sunday is because it's the Feast of First Fruits. All right? So Sunday is a really super important day. It's this day that we celebrate resurrection, but it's important because Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. That's why it matters. Here are these words from 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation, and so is your faith. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, he says, is worthless. You are still in your sins. Therefore, okay, therefores are always important. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. 
If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But now Christ, the Messiah, has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. All right? So, so Christ being raised is not just, I mean, it, it's sufficient for it to be a, a proclamation that he has victored, or he is victor over the death. He's victor over the grave, and we have hope because of that. Without the resurrection, friends, we have no hope. That's what, that's what Paul says. But not only that, he's the first fruits of those who fall asleep. In other words, because Christ has been raised, we look forward to a day in which those who have faith in him will be raised. So, so our faith is not just based upon one day we will have a resurrection body. We will have a resurrection body because the Messiah himself has been raised. Amen? All right, do you get the picture? I want you to get the picture. This is first fruits. This is first fruits. This is what we celebrate every resurrection Sunday. This is, the, without the resurrection, we have no hope. Messiah's resurrection was a first fruit offering and a proclamation that our faith in him is a sure foundation. It's not built on something shaky. It's not built on sand. It's built on solid rock, the resurrection. So this is first fruits very quickly, okay? We're just, we're flying through these because we have to. So much more to say. So you come to first fruits and then 49 days later, uh, or 49 days based upon uh, seven weeks in a day, you have um, the next feast, which is Shavuot. Shavuot, also known as the Feast of Weeks or known as Pentecost. Pentecost has, become to, has uh, been come to know as the giving of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to think of Shavuot, think of Holy Spirit, okay? Holy Spirit. Say it with me. Holy Spirit. Okay, Shavuot, Holy Spirit. Now, the timing of Shavuot is based upon the time of Passover. I want you to notice this. Um, uh, Leviticus 23, verse 15. You are to count seven complete weeks, starting from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the presentation offering. Okay, so he's tying it back to what has happened with Passover, what has happened with unleavened bread, and what has happened with first fruits. It's tied back to that. Um, it's interesting. If I were to ask you the date of Christmas, what would you say? Fantastic. You know the day of Christmas, December 25. If I were to ask you the day of Shavuot this year, what would it be? Exactly, right? Um, exactly. And, and that's intentional. That's intentional. God wants, did someone just say it? Okay, I thought someone yelled it out, and I was going to be super impressed. Um, the, the reason is because the actual date changes every year. Based upon the lunar calendar and, and all this, it's based upon Passover, so you have to count for Passover to know where Shavuot actually rests. We have December 25. Here it is, Christmas. You know, um, um, Thanksgiving is like this. It happens on a certain Thursday in the month of November, but it depends on the date, depending on the year. Same idea. Um, but God says, I want you to count a certain number of days after this day and this day and this day, because he wants to tie it back to what happened at Passover. This idea of redemption runs through all of these things. Um, seven complete weeks, starting from the day after the Passover, the day you brought out the presentation offering. Um, Shavuot is a time 
That is marked as uh, uh, the, the rabbis commemorated as the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. So you think about Israel's journey. They're, re, they're redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, and then they're brought out. They've got the whole Red Sea thing. We talked about that several months ago. And then several weeks later, they're at Mount Sinai. They're before the mountain of the Lord, and they're given the Torah. Uh, they're, they're given, here's, here's how I want to covenant with you, God says. Um, will you hear this? Will you obey this? Will you follow this? And they say, yes, we will. All right, that's Exodus 19 and following. Um, so um, Shavuot is the day that's commemorated as the giving of the Torah. Um, in Acts chapter 2, there is a very important feast, <clears throat> Shavuot, Feast of Tabernacles, Pentecost, that takes place, and something significant happens. The Holy Spirit comes upon these early Jewish believers in Jesus during this feast of Shavuot, Pentecost. Peter preaches a powerful sermon about what the Messiah Jesus did on behalf of humanity. Why would he do that? Because it all goes back to redemption. And he says, in the culmination of this fantastic sermon, he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. All right, that's his altar call. Here it is. And, and this resulted in 3,000 people accepting the message of forgiveness through Messiah's death and resurrection and demonstrating uh, their change of life through water immersion, through baptism. The giving of the Spirit is the inauguration of God's promise to write his teaching, write his Torah on the heart, giving his followers the power they need to know and to do the will of God. So there's several passages that come into play here. Some of them we have studied. Jeremiah 31, for example, comes to mind. Shavuot is unique, though, in that it includes two loaves of bread. It includes a sin offering and a peace offering. And I love what Sam Nadler has to say here. He says, when the Apostle Paul speaks to Gentiles at Ephesus, commenting on this offering, simply called peace, he's referring to the peace offering, just as the sin offering is called sin, he says, and he's quoting from the scripture here, um, Ephesians 2, 13 through 15, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah, for he is our peace offering, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. So the, the, this peace offering, these two loaves of bread, um, it, it, is, it is said that these two loaves of bread represent all of the nations, both Jew and Gentile. What we see in Acts chapter 2 is God comes and 3,000 Jewish people become followers of Jesus, the Messiah. Um, in chapter 2 of Acts verse 10, we see that proselytes also become believers in Messiah Jesus. In Acts chapter um, 10, um, we find that um, a man is sent, uh, Paul sent to Cornelius, or Peter sent to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile. And you have this story throughout the book of Acts, how the, how the gospel goes, not just to the Jewish people, but it goes to the nations. In fact, Paul's um, heart is that the gospel will go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so this is his pattern. He goes into a synagogue and he preaches, and then he goes and he finds all, all people everywhere, whether it be in Athens at, the, uh, at Mars Hill or at the Acropolis, and he goes and he starts preaching, and he just starts sharing. A guard next to him, he starts sharing with them. And we see that the gospel is not just for the Jew, it's also for the Gentile. 
All right? And this is all in keeping with God's promise to Abraham that I will bless all nations of the earth through you. How? Through redemption, through the Messiah, Jesus. One of the important things about Acts chapter 2, and well, about Acts, and, and about the movement of the gospel with Shavuot, in Acts chapter 1, um, it, it says, uh, Jesus is saying, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power for what? He says, power to be my witnesses, my witnesses to the world. God's desires that the message would go forth, that all people uh, would come to faith in Messiah, that this message would be proclaimed, and that, um, and that when people trust Jesus and they trust his death and his burial and resurrection for their lives, the Holy Spirit comes into their life, not just giving them power, but giving them power to understand the word of God and to walk in his ways. This is Shavuot. It has a whole bunch more to it, but at the core of it, we have this amazing work of the Holy Spirit um, that, that takes place. Um, so you have a Shavuot. Now, we come to the fall feasts, okay? So those are all the spring feasts. You have Passover. You have unleavened bread. You have first fruits, and you have Shavuot. Very good. We'll do that as a quiz later, so just kind of get that in your mind. Um, now we come to Rosh Hashanah, okay? Rosh Hashanah means head of the new year, or chief of the new year is where it comes from. Rosh is the, it means head chief or top, Hashanah is year. Um, this is also known as Feast of Trumpets, okay? There's lots of names for these, which makes it challenging sometimes, but it's, it's also known as Feast of Trumpets. It's known as Yom Teurah. Um, it's really the Feast of Blowing is what it's called. Uh, in, in Hebrew, if you were to translate, Teurah, it means uh, a war, it means cry, it means alarm for war, it means signal, it means shout of joy. It's this idea of a blast of noise, okay? So there's some conversation about what is the blast, and it depends upon the context. Uh, it begins on the first day of the seventh month. Look with me, please, at Leviticus 23, verses 23 through 25. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you are to have a day of complete rest, commemoration, and joyful shouting. A sacred assembly, you must not do any work, but you must present a fire offering to the Lord. Now, it's interesting. That's all it says, all right? It, it, it's, there's not a ton said about this. And so there's a ton of scholarship and a ton of um, um, Questions and conversation back and forth of what is all about Rosh Hashanah? What, what, what is this blowing, this blast of the trumpet or this huge sound of noise? Well, trumpets um, are really important. Um, we, we know this day there's a ceasing of work, a fire offering, a blasting of noise. Um, some of the ways that we see this word for, for blasting of noise used in the scripture, for example, is in Numbers 23, verse 21. It's what happens when a king is among the people, and the people make this huge noise. Um, in 1 Chronicles 15, 28, the Ark of the Covenant comes into the camp, and there's this huge mess of noise going on. Um, or here, it's a, it's, it's a holy assembly. Um, the JPS Guide to Jewish Traditions, just for quoting here, says this. Um, Trumpets were sounded to stir and to arouse the emotions. Just as they sounded the alarm as a call to arms before battle, so the trumpets blared to awaken the people to a critical moment in their spiritual lives. There's something 
that probes your soul when you hear a good trumpet blown. Here's a shofar. Okay, this is a small shofar. The, the really cool ones are the ones that are like this, and you can get a bunch of different tones. But just imagine, on this day, one of the main features of this day is people gather, and they hear. You hear the sound. You hear the sound. A critical moment in spiritual life. If you were sleeping, I hope you're awake now. <laughs> if you're at home and you're sleeping, I hope you're awake now. Or you're like, what is going on there? You hear the sound of the trumpet. It's like, what is going on? Something's going down right now. After the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the ram's horn, the shofar, became prominent in the feast. And the ram's horn is, is reminiscent of when God descends upon Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, 16. The blowing of God's people at the battle of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. And the ram that God provided in Genesis 22 at the Akedah, where God tells Abraham, I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice your son, your, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac. And as Abraham's getting ready to do this, God says, stop. I know that you trust me. And he says, look over there and you'll find a ram. I've provided all you need. Um, we see two important future references to blowing in the New Testament which quite likely are the prophetic fulfillments of this feast. Um, one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, when it says how, how changed in a moment, at the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ are raised. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, He's comforting his, his people. He's comforting the church there who think that they have missed um, the Lord's return. And, and he, the apostle Paul promises them. He says, I say this as, as a word of the Lord. You, you will not uh, go before those who are asleep. In fact, in a moment in twinkling of an eye, that's 1 Corinthians. Um, let me read it to you. You know when you have a passage in your mind and then you can't get it back in your mind? He says this. We say this to you by revelation of the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. And for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with an archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will be raised first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. These are critical spiritual moments. The shofar reminds us today of the future return of the Lord and the following judgment. In Judaism, it marks the preparation for what are known as the 10 days of awe. Uh, 
So you have Feast of Trumpets and you have the ensuing 10 days that are called the 10 days of awe. And they're days within the Jewish um, uh, calendar. They're, they're days of reflection. They're days of seeking to do good things. They're days of knowing before whom you stand, as one scholar puts it. Recognizing that God is God and I'm not. In the midst of all life, he is the judge, I am not. These days are intended for solemn reflection as they lead towards Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a day of prayer, fasting, and repentance. And the blowing seems to signify entrance into a season that is marked by a prayerful contemplation of life before a holy God. Okay, so you have Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year, we go to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is known as the highest and the holiest day of the Jewish year. It happens on the 10th day of the seventh month. Leviticus 23, verse 26. Following the Lord again spoke to Moses, the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. You are to hold the sacred assembly and practice self-denial. You are to present a fire offering to the Lord. On this particular day, you are not to do any work, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for yourselves before the Lord your God. If any person does not practice self-denial on this particular day, he must be cut off from his people. I will destroy among his people anyone who does any work on the same day. You are not to do any work. This is a permanent statute. Your generations, wherever you're, throughout your generations, wherever you live. It will be a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. You are to observe the Sabbath from the evening of the ninth month to the, uh, until the following evening. And so you have this gathering, holy gathering, fasting, prayer. And it, notice in there it said atonement for yourselves, or maybe it says atonement for you. The you here is plural. When you think of Yom Kippur, you think of the Day of Atonement, think of national cleansing, okay? Say cleansing, Cleansing. Think of this cleansing. Now, it's important to distinguish this. There is nothing about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that confers redemption. Okay? Redemption does not happen because of Yom Kippur. It doesn't happen because of fasting and prayer and all these things. Why does redemption occur? Passover. Thank you. So whoever said that. Passover. All right? Passover is what confers redemption. It's the work of Messiah by dying and by raising to life. That's what pays for our sin. That's what makes us right with God. It's not atoning. What is happening here is this picture that coming before God um, is, 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 let me put it this way. Yom Kippur doesn't make anyone right with God. Only Passover does. Let me share with you this story that I think expresses the point of Yom Kippur so well. Um, this, is, this is from a devotional that I received this week from Chosen People Ministries. And it's written by a, a, a Messianic Jew who was doing some evangelism in New York City. And he says this. It was less than a week after the Day of Atonement. And I thought I would take the opportunity to engage my self-proclaimed antagonist. He's on the streets, and there's a Hasidic rabbi who is across the way, and they just believe two different things. And so he says, I I take this opportunity to engage my self-proclaimed antagonist in meaningful conversation. And I asked the rabbi, whose name I knew, Baruch, did you have a good high holiday season? He looked at me, and he said, of course. I then asked if I could ask him a bit of a personal question, and he replied with a quick, sure. I asked Baruch, whose name means blessing, 
Do you know if you were blessed with the forgiveness of your sins on Yom Kippur? He smiled at me like a father whose young and precocious son had asked a naive but potentially reasonable question. He answered, you believers in Jesus think it's so easy to be forgiven. You just say a little prayer and bingo, you're forgiven. I returned the good-natured smile and said, Baruch, I really want to know. You've spent all your day fasting after 10 days of intensely repenting, and now the books of life and death are closed, according to Jewish tradition. And I'm wondering, did you make it into the book of life? Then in typical Brooklyn, New York fashion, since I knew he lived in Brooklyn, I said, answer the question, yes or no. His tone of voice warmed, and he became almost pastoral and said, how can someone ever know they were forgiven? You think you get a certificate or something like that. It is a matter of faith and believing you did the right thing. I pressed him one more time and said, so you do not know for sure that your sins are forgiven. This time he became a bit exasperated with me and I don't blame him. And using my Hebrew name said, Menachem, even if I were forgiven, I would walk out of the synagogue and sin again and have to repeat the whole process the following year. He continued, this point is this, a faithful Jew must keep repenting all the time in order to be forgiven of sin. It is a constant process. I smiled and said, thank you. He asked, why the thank you? I told him that his answer reminded me of why I'm so grateful for what Yeshua the Messiah did for him and for me. He died once for all, for all sins, for all time, and for all people. Though I need to repent and live for him, my eternal future rested in his mighty hands and not my own. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One of the going thoughts within various communities about Yom Kippur is that there's something about our fasting and something about our repentance that makes us right before God. Sometimes we think our church attendance makes us right before God, or I didn't do all these things, so naturally I'm good, right? There's only one way we're made right before God, through trusting the work of the Messiah, Jesus. So beautifully illustrated in that story. So you come, Yom Kippur, all right? So you, so you have um, Rosh Hashanah, you have Yom Kippur, now you have Sukkot, Sukkot. This is an interesting picture, picture for Sukkot. Sukkot means tabernacles, or it means dwelling places. Uh, a sukkah is a temporary dwelling. Um, Sukkot is plural. That's why it sounds similar, but it's not. Um, it refers to uh, the 15th day of the seventh month, and it's the last of the pilgrim festivals in the last part of the harvest season. You can read about it in Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 34. There are certain things that you are supposed to do. It's, a, it's basically a, a, a rejoicing. It, it, it's a party. Uh, Sukkot remembers how Israel dwelt in temporary dwellings. Um, after they had come out of Egypt. They, they, they lived in these tents because they went from one place to another. They followed where God wanted them to go. And, and their, their dwelling was not like a brick and mortar house. Hey, we're planting down for the next 20 years. God said, follow me. And they said, okay, pack up everything. Okay, unpack everything. It's this, this learning to rest upon God. And this, um, there's three commandments in the Torah for uh, Sukkot. Uh, dwelling in booths, gathering of the four species, um, and rejoicing. 
Now, sometimes we think in Christian circles that God is a very serious God. <laughs> but I love what it says. At Leviticus 23, verse 40. You know, God is, God's very, very serious. You are to celebrate, ah, verse 39. You are to celebrate the Lord's festival on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days after you've gathered the produce of the land. This will be a complete rest on the first day and a complete rest on the eighth day. And on the first day, you're to take the product of majestic trees, palm fronds, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you are to rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. God is saying, I want you to go and I want you to have a party with and before me. You are to celebrate it as a festival to the Lord seven days each year. God is a God who loves to rejoice. He loves to party. Now, this uh, picture of the sukkah, uh, and you might wonder, what on earth is this? This is a sukkah in a city, <laughs> all right? They, they weren't able to get out and build a sukkah somewhere else, so they build a temporary dwelling place on their porch right here. This is, so they'd go out here, Jewish people would go out there, maybe for one meal a day. Some of them might sleep in it um, for, the, for the period of time, but it's this, this chance to remember, you know, when you look up through the, the ceiling, you're supposed to be able to see the stars, to be reminded that God is up there, that God covers you. The, the, the sukkah has become a generation or a general symbol of divine protection. As in the evening prayer, that ask God to spread over us the sukkah of your peace. This festival stresses that material wealth is transitory. The only possessions that one can amass for all of eternity are the future spiritual rewards for living righteously. It, it, it reminds us that God cares for us so much that he would actually come to dwell. Now, we don't have time to go into this, but in Zechariah 14.6, we see a prophetic fulfillment of Sukkot. Zechariah mentions this prophetically. He says, Then all the survivors from the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the festival of booze, or to celebrate Sukkot. And you have this picture of a time that has not yet happened where people will gather to celebrate Sukkot. Here, when you think of Sukkot, I want you to think of this word, dwelling. Can you say Dwelling. Dwelling, dwelling. Here's the picture I want you to get. Israel is coming out of Egypt. Where was God? He's in the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. He's in their midst. Israel's in a harsh wilderness. The word used for wilderness when it talks about their wanderings, it's the harshest kind of wilderness you can experience. And yet when the scripture, that's what it is geographically. Yet when the scripture uses the word for wilderness, it refers to a very livable wilderness. What makes the difference? Well, where was God? God was in their midst. God was in their midst. He, he, he dwelt with them. He led them. He tabernacled with them. You, you, you come into... Um, you come into the land, and there's the tabernacle that goes with them, and eventually you come to Solomon. Solomon builds a temple, and God dwells there. But, but God's pattern is always to be near his people. Think of it for a moment. In the garden, God comes down to walk with Adam and Eve. He, he walks with people like Noah and Abraham. He dwells in a tabernacle amidst his people. He dwells in the temple that Solomon built in John chapter 1, it says this. And the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. 
we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth. God sends his son, why? To dwell with us on earth, to, to die and to be raised for our sins. And Jesus says in the book of John, he says, I'm, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. In fact, uh, I need to go away so that I can send the Holy Spirit to be with you. He, he will come and he will give you power for all the things you need in your life. But he says this, I will come back again and I will take you to be with me that where I am, there you may be also. The picture of God in relationship with us is that God wants to dwell with you and I. He wants to walk with us each day. He, he wants your life and my life to be ones that are cognizant that he loves us and that he has died for us. And I love this picture. I love this picture. I think, I think Sukkot, I think this verse Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, or look, God's dwelling is with humanity. God's dwelling is with humanity. God is not distant. God is not dormant. God cares about his people, his dwelling one day, one day. I mean, he dwells in us by the Holy Spirit now. What an incredible gift. But behold, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, nor grief, nor crying, nor pain. All these former things have all passed away. And then because the one who is seated on the throne says this, I am making all things new. He said to me, write down these words. They are faithful and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. He goes on to say, for those who follow me, here's what I give you, myself. For those who don't follow me, eternal separation from me. God wants to dwell with you. God wants to have a relationship with you. The scripture says this, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let me ask you a question. These feasts remember and proclaim God's work to redeem, to restore, to provide, to sanctify, and to dwell with his people. The only way to truly celebrate the feast is to have a relationship with God through the Messiah Jesus. You can go through all the motions, but without the Messiah Jesus at the center, it means nothing. Do you have a relationship with Jesus, your Messiah? We're going to celebrate communion this morning as we close. This is a time for us to remember. Worship team, you guys can come up. Um, this is a time to remember what Christ has done for us in Passover, but it's a time to look forward to what Christ will do in the future when we will dwell with God forever. All right, next week, Ecclesiastes, whether you're joining us in person or online, uh, 9.30, 11, and then 6, a great time to jump into that book. I encourage you, this week, read the book of Ecclesiastes and uh, get, get a bit of a frame for it as we jump into that text next week. Uh, would you stand with me as we close? My friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May you experience the favor of God this week and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus as you go out to be his hands and feet in the world in which we live. Lord bless you. See you next week.